Well, first and foremost, I hope that they're moved by the picture. I mean, more than just, a, just an intellectual idea, I hope that they're viscerally affected because I think that's what really leads to people thinking about something. Um, if you just say, well, here's a statement, you know, people will either nod if they agree or shake their heads if they don't, and then they'll go home and forget it. If you get under their skin with characters in a story, that's when there's a chance that they'll have to sit with it and think about it. After Dead Poets Society announced him to the world as a screen presence to keep our eyes on, the first project that Ethan Hawke passionately pursued was an independently made World War II film that, like Dead Poets, focused on the communal coming of age of a group of young boys. Only this time, he was the leader of a squadron of up-and-comers and first-timers in the film world, including Gary Sinise and future friend and collaborator Frank Whaley. Following last month's episode on Alive, Hawk is once more fighting for his life in the hellish snowscape that is 1992's A Midnight Clear. And with that, welcome once again to Hawk Talk. I am Sam Inglis. I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm Timothy Evans, the heavy metal cinephile. Also joining us this month is film festival founder and programmer, annoyingly good cinephile card game player, and general force of chaos, Billy Ray Bruton. I always enjoy being called annoying chaos. <laughs> well, it it is a pleasure to be here. I feel like I I feel like I have a deep investment in this podcast. As I feel like I was on a Zoom when it was very early discussed that there was going to be a an Ethan Hawke podcast. Uh, but yes, it's delightful to be here. I, of course, am in England with Sam and Tim. Uh, I am currently sitting in a back corner of a pub somewhere, drinking Guinness and uh, making a fool of myself in front of these fine people. And a surprisingly quiet pub it is. Before we get into our personal histories with the Midnight Clear, right off the top, I'd like to just quickly address the fact that on last month's episode, I perhaps incorrectly stated that Alive was the first time Hawk was the ostensible lead of an ensemble drama. Now, A Midnight Clear is a year earlier and it positions him much more strongly as the audience point of view character, even narrating the story here. So there's nothing fuzzily questionable about his lead status as with Frank Marshall's film. But while they are both snowbound tales of survival, the major difference is in the $4 million budget of an A&M film's independent production against a $20 million Walt Disney Studios major release. Now, I did speak of Hawks casting on the Alive episode, perhaps in part resulting from Frank Marshall being the producer on one of Hawks' first films, Dad. But looking at a midnight clear refresh, you can see how very well he works in a group of young performers. He's, he's bringing a lot of nascent star quality while always serving the film, but never stealing the spotlight and making his scenes about him. I think Alive plugs him in in much the same way. It's just on a vastly, vastly bigger scale. So. Billy Ray, you knew you were coming on the show, but we're not covering one of your first choice picks until later next year. So of the options that we presented to you this time, what made you pick A Midnight Clear and, and what's been your personal history with the, the film up to this point? 
I mean, I chose a Midnight Club. That was a pretty easy decision because I've sort of been championing this film for 30 years. I mean, I saw this thing for the first time when it was on VHS. Uh, you know, I, I used to go devour everything that I could VHS wise. And this was a film that I saw when I was younger. At the time, as a young queer kid, I wanted to do unspeakable things to Ethan Hawke. Now, as a 40, almost 41 year old queer man, I still want to do unspeakable things to Ethan Hawke. But in a much older, more professional way. But no, love this <laughs> film, love this film, have loved it forever. It's one that I've I've raved about, but for so long it was entirely unavailable. It was so hard to get for so long. And then I remember when I first found out that it was getting a proper Blu-ray release and I was like, holy damn, like it's finally happening. Yeah, I just love this film. I think it's underrated. I think it's underseen. It's underappreciated. And I think it, you know, it's such a nice antidote to the rom-com gauzy christmas fair that we're that are shoved in our faces on a yearly basis it's a nice detour from that in stark contrast to that i i don't have a history with midnight clear i'd actually never seen it before prepping for this episode in fact i imported the german blu-ray uh which is the, the exact same content as the american and british discs it was just the most cost-effective option tim how were you coming to the to the movie before prepping for this episode then? Well, first, I'd just like to point out that the 2020 Shout Select release actually does have exclusive bonus features. Oh, pardon So me. it is the most up-to-date version. So if you want everything whole kit and caboodle, that's the one to go for. And I'm interested, Billy Ray, in that you mentioned the Blu-ray release. Was this the one you were referring to or, in fact, the UK release of way, way back in 2012? And that and this new American release includes a commentary track with both writer-director Keith Gordon and our man Ethan Hawke. So we'll be pulling from that a fair bit for this episode. It's a, a great listen. I am talking about the shout release that, that you just mentioned. That's, that's the one that I have. Mm -hmm. As I said on our intro episode and elsewhere, Reality Bites is the one that makes me aware of Hawk in a big way. Gattaca's the one that has me following everything he does from then on. And so uh, Midnight Clear, it sort of falls into that thing you do when you find an actor you like or love and you start sort of obsessively filling in the blind spots of the back catalogue. And I, I guess added to that, I like war movies. I especially love anything with snow or people in awful situations made worse by adverse weather. So this was one of the first titles I gravitated towards when I started mainlining Hawk's work. In preparation for tonight's recording was my third viewing, and, and that was this time with the more recently released Shout Select. So I've enjoyed this one over 20 years since I first saw it. Hawk's contribution obviously being a big reason, I think, as to why it holds up as well as it does. So before we get into the film itself, I, I think it's important to note that this is based on a novel by William Wharton, which I have to hold my hands up. I didn't know before sitting down to watch it. The book apparently draws heavily on Wharton's real experiences of World War II. And unlike our episode on Alive, we didn't have as much prep time for this. So neither Tim or I has read the book. But Billy Ray, I, I understand you've at least cracked it. Cracking it is correct. I've read one chapter. It was a book that I bought uh, because, you know, I love the film. And I, I have read Birdie, which was Wharton's other book, and uh, which obviously was turned into the Nick Cage film. So I bought it. I, I got through a chapter. And, and what and what happens so much with me is I have every intention of, of going through a book, but I'll, re I'll go through one or two chapters. You know, my ADD will kick in something else, you know, squirrel, and then I will never go back to it. I have a I have a graveyard of amazing books on my shelf that have barely been tickled 
and are just waiting to laugh once again. <laughs> I love Graveyard of Books. I don't think I'll ever use the word stack again. I've heard good things about the novel. I'm sure it's actually probably a lovely text. Uh, and maybe this will be the incentive I need to actually finish the goddamn thing. I think it might well be for all three of us. Because mm. I have to say, I'm really annoyed at not having done so. And it will certainly be a scheduling consideration in the future. Because as with the Alive episode, I want to be as thorough as possible in terms of research. And I always love talking about adaptations. Now, I did look for a movie tie-in edition of the book as I collect those. But I'm guessing as an independent film that that was probably never going to be a thing. I don't think, though, that we'd be able to debate those page-to-screen differences in quite the same depth as we did with Alive, as by Keith Gordon's own admission, the adaptation is incredibly faithful to the book, to the point where a lot of the time it feels as though he's simply reformatting pages from the novel into the screenplay. But this approach, it, it really did pay off because he was subsequently nominated for the, the Independent Spirit Award for Best Screenplay in 1993. So as you've mentioned, Tim, Ethan Hawke, he's heading up the ensemble here. He plays Sergeant Will Not, nicknamed Won't by the squad. And given the film's narration, you'd assume that he was playing a, a version of Wharton. But the commentary informs us that Wharton is, in fact, far closer to the sort of strapping Aryan-looking character played by uh, Peter Berg. And another unexpected connection to Wharton, Billy Ray has uh, alluded to it a little bit. I mentioned at the top A&M Films earlier as the independent production company doing things very differently from uh, Walt Disney in terms of size and scale. They, of course, were an arm of a more famous record company. They had a, a pretty small roster of releases that certainly for your purposes, Sam, included teen movies like The Breakfast Club, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer. And if that's not enough, a Jennifer Jason Lee movie, Crooked Hearts, also starring Peter Berg. My favourite of their releases is the alt-rock spiked So Fucking What or SFW, starring young Reese Witherspoon and Stephen Dorff. But most pertinent for this conversation was indeed their 1984 hit Birdie, which, as Billy Ray has already said, was an adaptation of a Wharton novel. So you can see the obvious attraction of going back to that well. And when I was talking about Frank Marshall being a producer on Dad, which no doubt helps Ethan Hawke land the role when Marshall is directing Alive, well, guess what? Dad is also a William Wharton adaptation, which surely contributes to the well-read Hawk being so comfortable with reciting large swaths of the author's lines here three years later. And by implication, it probably explains some of his passion in pursuing the role post-Dead Poet Society. Billy Ray, you mentioned seeing this on VHS sort of soon after it came out in, in the States. It's not a film that I and, and Tim were saying that he doesn't particularly remember this being a film you encountered a lot at the local video stores around here. Did it have much presence in, in the US after its theatrical release? It's a film that I, I think you could certainly say probably did better on VHS than it did in theaters. And that's that's the case with a lot of films that came out, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, that's what most of these studios or even these independent titles, that's how they were probably banking on making their money back was on video rentals and video sales. That was part of it back then. So yeah, I mean, I remember it being very sort of ever present on video shelves here. I remember watching the trailers for this when I was a kid on other VHS tapes. And so it was around. I I, I don't, you know, memory's a, a fickle thing. In hindsight, if I would say that it was 
really put out there in a substantive way. But as a kid, I feel like I saw it a fair amount. I mean, it was a film that I had the poster of for a large amount of time. I didn't, it wasn't one that made it onto my wall. It was just one that sat in the corner with my other rolled up tubes. My tube graveyard. It's all about graveyards today. Yeah, no kidding. You said they were banking on VHS a lot of these films, and and really that was quite unfortunately the case with The Midnight Clear because it had the very unfortunate luck of being released April 24th, 1992 in the States, and that is uh, right at the time of the Rodney King verdict, which saw the LA and New York City theatres shut down. And in a limited release, those are the theatres the film was really relying on. And I don't know if this is true, but Keith Gordon has actually said that it made 66 bucks opening weekend with L.A. and New York City theatres. Yeah, I had not heard that. That would be I mean, that wouldn't be entirely surprising to me. I don't think this was a film. Like I said, I don't think this is a film where theatrical was their big play. So I'm sure it got appropriately dumped the way a lot of these films did. But I have to think it probably did pretty well on VHS. I mean, keeping in mind, this was back in the time when an adult drama like this did pretty well, like they did generally pretty well in theaters and in video. So I would imagine this actually did okay. It was a pretty small budget. I bet it did okay on VHS sales. So despite a difficult release, shall we say, the commentary does note that the film got strong reviews and a little research seems to bear that out. Roger Ebert gave the film three stars and for our British listeners who who may not know, that's out of four, not five, as is, is common here. And he said in conclusion that it's a little too much of a parable for my taste. There are times when the characters seem to be acting out of the author's need rather than their own, but it's a good film. And Gordon is uncanny in the way he suggests the eerie forest mysteries that permeate all of the action. And without going into a lot of detail, the New York Times review observes that the film is seriously angry. And Vincent Canby says that just about everything works and that it seems that Keith Gordon has much more experience than this being his second film. But he's not over keen on John C. McGinley's character or an extended flashback in the film's first act, both of which we'll come back to. On our side of the pond, Farah Anwar, writing for Sight and Sound upon the film's UK release, which was almost an entire year later, on March 5th, 1993, uh, she actually points to a crucial and one of the few departures from the novel, namely the catch-22-like absurdist elements of the squad's war room superior, the character Sam was talking about, played by John C. McGinley. In the book and in the film, we learn he was a former mortician in civilian life, and now he's become obsessed with military glory by bestowing the most nightmarish missions on the boys in his charge. No performances in the review are singled out, which I found quite curious, but I love her labelling of this film as the Dirty Dozen whittled down to the Cerebral Six, which helps it gain enough emotive momentum to put a fresher, more thoughtful spin on all the war is hell philosophising. Not everyone was so convinced though, and as in our Mystery Date episode, we are back to Mark Savlov of the Austin Chronicle, bemoaning the film as one big missed opportunity. He writes... Unfortunately, three quarters of the way through, what was shaping up to be one heck of a unique take on the big one and the nature of war in general all falls apart. There are whole segments in A Midnight Clear that have little or no use here and scream of padding, which is really too bad, having made brilliant use of Utah's very Ardennes-like scenery and after positioning so many interesting questions regarding the politics of war and the question of the enemy, it's a shame that this film splutters out quite as badly as it does. So 
now it's time to see where the three of us come down. Before we go any further, Sam, let's just fill our listeners in with a brief summary of what a midnight clear is actually about. As the end of World War II approaches, a squad of young American soldiers who've been chosen for their intellect but depleted from 12 men to 6 by battle are assigned a a recon mission to watch activity among the stark, snow-covered landscape of the German-French border. There have been rumblings of major offensive, and they're on the lookout for it. The squad soon take up residence in an abandoned chateau, and they discover a battle-weary squad of Germans, as reluctant to fight as they are. And with common ground established, the German platoon offers to be, in inverted commas, captured, and a phony battle is staged to save honour. However, a tragic misunderstanding has devastating consequences in this powerful depiction of war's insanity. The war here is it's actually shot not too far from the site of the Sundance Film Festival in Utah. Which is all the more impressive when you learn that veterans of the Ardennes conflict have actually mistaken it and thanked Keith Gordon, apparently, for shooting it on location. <laughs> I think equally as surprising as that, a Midnight Clear was actually originally intended a studio fair with Tom Cruise being eyed up for what became Hawk's role. And the commentary tells us that all the hot actors of the day, that's everyone from Brad Pitt to David Spade, auditioned for a script that really did the rounds on the road to getting it made. I'm not sure if you have any more information on this, Billy Ray, but in all our joint research, it's unclear to me which studios were previously interested and at what point the word around town deems the material too dark, too sad, and too morally challenging for it to ever be a studio picture. I don't know a ton more. I know that for a while this was rolling around Orion. I know for a while it was also rolling around MGM. So yeah, I I know little that it was, I know a little bit about the fact that it was kind of, but th- you know, this happens so much and still does to a large degree where it's like, you'll have this script, you'll have this title, everybody's talking about it, everybody wants it, everybody wants to be in it, and then that'll come and go. And then it's just sitting there and sitting there until somebody makes an indie film out of it. Like that's happened so much, it obviously happened here. I would have been interested to see Tom Cruise in this. I think that could have been interesting casting. I mean, I think they did a great job with what they did in terms of casting but yeah i mean i would have it would have been interesting to see a lot of those actors you know tackle this but again i think if it would have been a mainstream film it would have felt very very different than what we ended up getting and i've read a lot about how this is a very close approximation to the novel i don't think we would have said that had this been a studio film i mean i think it's worth noting that we're probably not talking about you know like 1990 tom cruise here this book was published in 82 so we're we're probably talking more sort of outsiders era cruise or or a couple of years after that so he'd have been about the right age for it because I I think it's easy to look at the film now and just transpose the two but that's not quite what we're talking about yeah it was when he and Ethan Hawke both had bad teeth To to get into the, the sort of picture of the time a little bit, I'm, I'm not an expert, and in fact, I'm not really a fan of the genre. It doesn't seem like war movies, certainly American war movies, were particularly massive in the early 90s. The late 80s had given us a lot of auteur approaches to Vietnam. Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Stone's Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July, De Palma's Casualties of War, Barry Levinson's Good Morning Vietnam, Billy Ray, I'm sure you've got many more. It was a big time for war movies. It was a very, very big time for war movies. The other one that I would throw in the mix is another film that I think makes a great double feature with a Midnight Clear called December from 1991, which is uh, Balthazar Getty, Jason London, Will Wheaton, 
about a group of kids in a prep school trying to decide if they're going to enlist to join the army after Pearl Harbor. They share some spiritual DNA, that film in A Midnight Clear. I tried to do my homework. I haven't even heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, it's directed by Gabe Torres, who uh, recently most people might know is one of kind of the driving forces behind the the new Netflix Unsolved Mysteries series, of all things. But I, it's another one of those films, like A Midnight Clear, that I've, I've been spreading the word for 30 years. And December's had a lot more difficult time catching up to midnight clear in that regard sure of both your talking points i've I've got two responses to the 80s vietnam films and also billy ray this idea of what would pair brilliantly as a double feature so to the vietnam aspect of it all my favorite is actually hamburger hill because like a midnight clear from what i remember it's been quite a while since i've seen it but uh, i do recall it's operating on this much smaller scrappier scale it isn't as uh, message driven or trying to deliver a statement about the war it's got this boots on the ground point of view that is largely apolitical and it's really simply about trying to survive the thick of a firefight and war movies that operate purely on the level of survivalism are the ones that I am most drawn to. That could be really anything from more recent releases like 1917 to the classic Hollywood era of Robert Ryan in Men in War or Gregory Peck in Porkchop Hill. But in terms of a double feature, I'll see your December and I will raise you what I think is the best example of classic Hollywood era. And that's 1949's Battleground, directed by the great William Wellman. Now, unlike a midnight clear, Battleground was a huge success it had six academy award nominations but the two films have so many striking similarities and i am certain without a doubt that keith gordon must have taken some direct inspiration in terms of staging and pacing and mood both films recreate wintry conditions in the dense forest of the arden wellman does it actually entirely on sound stages which is doubly impressive both movies are about raw nerve soldiers who spend as much time anxiously awaiting conflict as they do taking heavy fire They're both in situations of painstakingly drawn-out attrition. And in both the fresh meat grunts putting their lives on the line, they're none the wiser to the commander's overall strategy or whether their efforts are helping to turn the tide against the enemy. Both of the films are only ever indirectly political. Has this more intense concentration on a band of brothers who are winning hard-fought skirmishes rather than fully-fledged battles. You know, they're staying alive by the skin of their teeth just by looking out for one another. So Battleground would be my recommendation there. It's available on uh, what is an always beautifully presented Warner Archive Blu-ray. Seek it out. Coming back then to the time of a Midnight Clears release, by the dawn of the 90s, we're, we're sort of coming to the end of the Cold War, which gives us a great 1990 film in uh, John McTiernan's The Hunt for Red October. But otherwise, I, I get the sense that, at least in the US mainstream, the genre was a little burnt out after the 80s. In 1990, we also had John Woo's epic Bullet in the Head, the NAM sequence in which owes a great deal to Sammo Hung's Eastern Condors. And there are the less well-remembered... Air America and Flight of the Intruder in 1990 and 91, respectively. Otherwise, I think the only especially notable US-made World War II film of those first couple of years of the 90s, and unless you count The Rocketeer, which is criminally underrated, would be Memphis Bell, which is also a very fine film with a young cast about a bomber on its 25th and final mission. But I guess... What we're trying to say here is it's fair to say that Midnight Clear didn't exactly emerge into a crowded market for war movies. War movies definitely weren't as popular as 
frequent in the early 90s as they were the 80s you were still getting them you know you were still getting a couple every year you get things like heaven and earth or you know something like that like you would always get a couple every year it it did not come out at an opportune time for a film on that subject matter which is essentially like like has been said it's essentially an anti-war movie (laughs) that's also a parable that's also a christmas movie that's also about mostly good people it's it's a very bizarre film to be coming out in the 1992 landscape we don't see war movies world war ii movies certainly of any huge note until the end of the decade and boy when that comes around do we because of course i'm talking about visionary filmmakers you've got the viscerally shell-shocking Saving Private Ryan from Spielberg, who, let's face it, the D-Day landing sequence has forever set the bar for war is hell immersion, and I feel like every other film since, and what, that's been 24 years? It, it still, to me, feels like so many war movies are aspiring to that. And then, on the flip side, you've got Terence Malick's competing opus of 98, The Thin Red Line. It was the lesser of the two at the time, but now it's inducted into the Criterion Collection, and rightly described by them as one of the most deeply philosophical films ever released by a major Hollywood studio. And while I'm not suggesting A Midnight Clear is comparably thought-provoking as a meditation on man, nature, or violence. As that sight and sound review pointed out, it's certainly more cerebral than most of its kind and has a lot on its mind, speaking to the exhaustion of living in constant fear and the horrors of men reluctant to even fight in the first place, dying pointless deaths as disposable heroes. And I think having Hawk as the voice of the movie, which of course is one of its chief pleasures, can't help but lend an air of philosophically curious inward-looking intellectualism, such as when he dreamily intones how even in a barren, frostbitten hellscape, the world appears to him as inescapably beautiful, right as he's most likely to be leaving it. As you just set up the voiceover, Tim, let's start there. A lot of that voiceover has this uh, deathly tone to it. It's it's almost anticipating the end at any moment. The the film itself lives in the shadow of death, and it, it opens in that way as well, with a, a montage of statues, all of which were created for the sequence, and all of which, to me at least, feel like they belong in a graveyard, like they're memorials, whether eventually to the boys that we're about to spend 100 minutes with or, or to the men who've preceded them. And transitioning from statues to the men soon to be buried under them. I mean, you have a, a major talking point here. Gary Sinise's first on-screen appearance. Would this have been the first time you saw Gary Sinise, Billy Ray? No, because I've, I'd seen Might of Mice and Men as well. So it wasn't my first exposure it would have been recent because those both came out the same year but yeah that would have been my first probably first time seeing him on screen and and what a way to see him on screen unleashing this primal scream of sorrow he's reacting to losing his newborn baby back in the states or indeed simply reaching the mental breaking point sometime after the facts but i for one i kind of like how it's unclear exactly which it is but in either case it's the film opening with a head-on reckoning of dealing with death and positioning it as a major theme long before our group of young soldiers start losing members of the squad that awful expression of anguish is also an attempt by him to get discharged from the army altogether so there's this sort of eerie performative aspect to it which i think only illustrates further how these men have been conditioned to readily detach themselves from death i think that comes about probably because the squad can't afford to feel the losses but despite that 
every lost man seems to kind of haunt the film. There's a moment where in a in a flashback, Will is remembering a dead teammate. He he says that the on the narration says that with his left arm gone and his face the way it was, I don't think he tried that hard to stay on. As Keith Gordon tracks into this guy's bloodied bandaged face and focusing on the eye. I, I think that shot really stayed with me because it's it's a very intimate account of the cost of war, and it's in one very simple, very striking image. But it it also just doesn't feel histrionic. Yeah, I I, I agree. We, we're talking a lot, of, you know, talking a lot about death and sort of the specter of death that hangs over this film, which you know is apt, and I think is absolutely true. But within that, I think we're given these sort of little. Yes, it's a film that is is sort of built around death, but it's also built around this idea of death as a trigger to celebrate life, which which is also a lot about what this this film is dealing with. And the, the Gary Sinise character, it is it is a bold move to start a film with that much sorrow that early on. Like that is a choice, and it's a choice that I respect because you're starting it at such a high level already, just knowing what that character has gone through and what he's experiencing. You're starting at such a high point. You're like, how, where does it go from here? Like usually it's something that, that that's something that builds. It's not something that just slams at you at the beginning. But then the film, you know, it, it, it goes on more of a meditative approach to the subject matter outside of just the in your face, you know, bludgeoning you on the head with it. And, you know, you mentioned Saving Private Ryan earlier. There is, you know, there is a lot of time spent in Saving Private Ryan where you really feel the DNA shared between that film and this film. Because it is a lot of philosophical conversations. It is a lot of this headiness that these characters are dealing with. This film is sort of about the, you know, the devolution of American youths for a large degree. Because, you know, you're dealing with these kids. I mean, that's that's what I think this film gets right that very few other war movies gets right. Is that these are just a bunch of kids who probably sat around you know, talking about the war and talking about wars and talking about how, oh, how they would do things differently. And then they all get pulled together. Why? Because they're smart, because of their IQs, because society is telling them you are better than all of these other kids. So we're going to put you together. So I can't imagine the shock and the horror of being put in this position where, oh, well, we're smarter than these other guys. We're obviously going to do better at this. We've been thinking about how we would do it better for ages. And then you get in there and you realize, oh, it's something very different to be in the shit versus to be commentating on the shit. And I just went on a nice little tangent rant there. Sorry, guys. I just was in my thoughts and feelings. You could say you were in something of an internal monologue, and we certainly get a lot of that here. Yeah. And it really speaks to the sense of youth you were talking about. It underlines it, in fact, that we keep coming back to uh, Hawke's very youthful voiceover. He's playing the reality of a 20-year-old sergeant with too much responsibility thrust upon him way too soon. One other thought that I had it made me think that I would love to have heard Hawke do an audiobook of the novel the younger Hawke that is not there's a scratch in his voice now that wouldn't work as well for it you know you can definitely hear that he's older I I think the dialogue of the voiceover is my favorite and probably the most significant dialogue in in the film to me in a lot of ways I I feel like you can hear the fear of impending loss and and the coping mechanism of a man who's trying desperately and to detach himself from this living hell around him I think it's especially powerful for how in the moment it feels with uh, these gulps cracks of his voice awkward hesitations and 
the occasional vocal stumble where you actually hear him catch himself with his words and start over. There's a passage about the waste of war that's especially strong. And obviously we don't have Ethan Hawke with us, but Billy Ray, are you ready to give us your best hawk? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I forgot I have to do this as Ethan Hawke. You're about to quite literally do some hawk talking. I, I am. I'm trying to decide how high pitched I want my voice to go. Wow. Okay. Are we ready? Neither of us can do the accent. so. <laughs> okay, here we go. See if I can get the. I'm trying to feel the hawk. I'm trying to feel, immerse myself with the hawk. I can hear you flapping your wings, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, you can hear it. You can hear. It. Oh, God. I channeled the wrong one. I channeled Lady Hawk. Damn it. Now let's rewind. Okay. Here we go. It's thanks to Griffin and his military mortuary skills that I made my recent headlong leap to three stripes. We lost half our squad attempting one of his map inspired, ill conceived recon patrols. When I say lost, I mean killed. Nobody in the army ever admits that someone on our side is killed. They're either lost, like Christopher Robin, hit, as in a batter hit by a pitch ball, or they get it, like in hide-and-go-seek. Not one of the six killed had any army intelligence score of less than 150. We gained a few miles of European real estate and lost the beginnings to untold generations of very bright people. I think the army considered this a good deal. You get the impression that throughout the various encounters the squad has with top brass in the film. Despite all the gunfire and chaos, the snowfield of death is seemingly a much better place to be than directly under the inhuman thumb of these men covered in medals who bullyingly bark orders but don't see any action in themselves. And we've alluded to him already. He's represented here by Point Break's John C. McGinley, who screamed red-faced orders so memorably the year before in that film. I'm certain the performance there led to his last-minute casting here, because actually they talked about big A-lister names in this cameo role that didn't happen in the end. For me, he's the exception to what is a very well-written and nuanced uh, cast of characters in that he's a little reductive and cliche for me in both writing and performance. He he comes off a, a bit of a cartoon bastard of a blinkered officer to me. His strategy reminds me of how Blackadder describes the command of World War One. Field Marshal Haig is about to make a, yet another gargantuan effort to move his drinks cabinet six inches closer to Berlin. That's a great pull, but I have to say, I don't see it quite so negatively. I, I feel much the same way about the portrayal of the war pigs in Kubrick's classic Paths of Glory. I mean, these men are pompous, puffed up cartoons who wage war by playing at it without ever getting their hands dirty. I think that's kind of the point with the McGinley character, Griffin. He's got to be the dog with the loudest bark because the military as Billy Ray was talking about earlier, they've made this decision, a disastrous one, in forming recon squads of smart young men. But of course, they make terrible intelligence officers because they're too busy questioning everything and the morality of their orders. So Griffin's only choice is to be that much louder to drown out those questions. I, I think that Gordon and McGinley, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they want us to see this for the farce it is. So you, your Blackadder comparison is actually quite appropriate. This film came out in 1992 at, at a time when it was just expected. You're going to have this character in a war film. And I'm not going to blame Arlie Ermey for that, but that certainly contributed to that. You know, there is just this seeming need in war movies to have that larger than life cartoony character 
who barks orders or whatever, even even up to like, I just saw the film The Inspection, which is a new film coming out. And Bokeem Woodbine essentially serves that exact same purpose in that film. You know, never mind, forget it. I am going to blame Arlie Ermey. Damn you, Arlie Ermey. It's your fault for being so goddamn charismatic in Full Metal Jacket. I'm with uh, Tim on this one. He doesn't, his performance doesn't really bother me because... I expect that performance. I mean, maybe if anything, yeah, it's a little lazy because that's what every film of the time has, but it didn't really bother me. I mean, I generally find that John C. McGinley is always idling at that performance level. Like that's just his idle state. And so (laughs) if he's giving me anything other than that, then I just assume he's hoarse. (laughs) Yeah, I also think that McGinley's presence here serves the purpose of continually reminding us yet again just how young and scared these characters are, especially whenever they're in his presence. To me, it's like watching six formers taunt the new kids at school in the playground. They feel a lot less like young men, actually, and more like boys, a a dynamic that's underlined by the very fact that two of the members of the squad are the designated parental figures. You've got Hawk as the squad leader, but it's the eldest played by Gary Sinise, who is referred to as mother, and Frank Whaley in the role of father. So they are not only reluctant to fight, but they're forced seemingly against their will to grow up. In all likelihood, they were they were probably still living with their parents before they shipped out. And the cast are very young, all of them. Hawk was, was only 20 when the film was shot, and Garrison East, who's playing the oldest, as you said, he's only playing 26. I don't know if he was quite that young, but... It's a film that hones in, essentially, on the reality of the fact that a lot of this war, a lot of many wars on the front line, are fought by boys, and and now girls, who are barely out of high school. Yeah, Gary Sinise would have been about 35, I think, when they shot this. Wow. He would have been about 35. Arya Gross would have been about 30. Kevin Dillon, younger, obviously. I've got to say, it comes off, they all seem very young. Yeah, they're all, Ethan Hawke is definitely the youngest of the group at this point, I think. Oh, yeah. And everybody else is in their late 20s, mid to late 20s-ish. But, you know, let's be clear, no one has ever had more of a baby face than Ethan Hawke had a baby face. Like, he looks like he could play 14 in this. I think we've got to give it up, though, for the onus on accelerated cradle-to-grave realism in the casting. It's more common now in war movies like Dunkirk, 1917, and Journey's End, but it was certainly unusual for 1992. So in this way, I think casting director Gary Zuckerbrod was way ahead of his time. And obviously it served him well, because his next theatrical feature following this was co-casting Pulp Fiction with Ronnie Yeskel. And from that perspective, I think A Midnight Clear is hugely important to Frank Whaley's career because Zuckerbod brings him from this to Pulp Fiction in, of course, one of the signature oft-quoted scenes that essentially sets up the rest of Whaley's very in-demand run through the rest of the 90s. And interestingly, Zuckerbrod now, his last major motion picture was 2000's father-son time travel thriller Frequency. And these days, his highest profile credit of all things is the first two Kissing Booth films on Netflix. So not a trajectory I could have predicted, but the point about casting so much younger is, again, it's inextricably tied to the theme of death that we've been exploring for quite a while now. And I think that's what Keith Gordon seems to want to really hammer home in as sophisticated a way as he can put across, is the senseless death of youth. 
and also, I mean, in terms of as the war is concerned, the necessary death of youth, because I think that's part of the casting in this as well, is you're not going to cast people in their 40s because those people are either dead or they are outranking the soldiers or they have been sort of spiraled out of the military in some way. Like you don't see a lot of people in their early and mid 40s out on the battlefield the way that these kids are. That's where they're going to send the kids because they are the most expendable. I think that theme of the film really comes to a head with the sequence of the fake skirmish that both sides have agreed to stage so that the German soldiers won't appear to have surrendered, ensuring then that their families in Germany don't suffer retribution. And when that skirmish goes wrong, when everything goes wrong, father, Frank Whaley's character, is shot and we see Will covering his friend as as his life ebbs quickly away. And for me, it's father's death I think that really hits us with the tragedy and the fear of these young lives being snuffed out. The entire time he's he's tearfully crying out and he's pleading with Will not to tell Mother, who, having been kept in the dark about the plan, is the one who screws it up by firing on the Germans when he hears the staged gunfire. But it occurred to me that I think you can also read what Father is saying there as imploring Will not to tell his mother that he cried while he was dying. That's interesting. I've actually never really thought of that, but that's an interesting point you make, and I don't disagree with that. I think, I mean, that certainly makes it a lot sadder and brings a different dimension of that sort of loss of innocence to the mix. I I think internally, in order for the rest of the movie to work, in my mind, it has to be Gary Sinise that he's referring to. But I like the idea that this other reality exists. I think it, it's also worth noting that up until that big death scene, Frank Whaley is excellent in this film, and as father, he's he's the religious one, he's the group's conscience to a, a degree, but I don't feel like he plays it as a narrative device, and I don't think the, the character comes off as preachy or overtly pious. It's interesting, this film is set at Christmas, we have this character, Father, who's a priest, and both of those things come into play. And it's interesting that we cover this after Alive because it's the second Ethan Hawke film in a row set in the snow that has some Christian themes running through it. But I don't think either could be described as an an overtly Christian movie. To Frank Whaley's performance, yeah, I I agree. I think he's really excellent here. He, He does this thing of projecting a top layer of goodness and compassion but I think it comes as much from the soul of the character as the teachings of the Bible. And then like right beneath that surface, you see this haunted and overwhelmed individual. And that comes across actually, especially in his nonverbal close-ups, reacting and taking in the dread-filled scenarios they find themselves in. And actually in that way, I think he and Hawk, who are also real-life friends, uh, as well as we pointed out, future collaborators, they feel to me like really simpatico performers. I mean, I think Frank Whaley is always sort of underrated in pretty much every film he's in. It's been interesting seeing where his career has gone because he had such a strong end of the 80s, like Field of Dreams and Born on the Fourth of July and The Doors and like was really amping up there to be what I would have thought would have been like one of our great go-to character actors. And he certainly is a character actor, but his career didn't quite go in the way I expected it to go. And so now he's kind of just become this guy who pops up for these you know, nothing roles in these films and he's not given really very much to do any more which is a shame because you see his performance in this film and you see that he's a he's a nuanced performer like he knows how you know 
He's a skilled actor. And I guess seeing him in this film, I think he's terrific, but it makes me a little sad. This is me being sad on behalf of somebody who might be very happy with where his career went. I just always felt like he deserved more and that we all kind of, as 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 a culture, failed Frank Whaley. You did tend there to focus at the end of the 80s, but I think I can comfortably speak for both Sam and myself. To both of us, I think he's always going to be Broken Arrows Frank Whaley. <laughs> yeah, see, for me, he's IQ's Frank Whaley. I would go with swimming with sharks. We got ourselves a broken arrow. A broken what? It's what we call it when we lose a nuclear weapon. I don't know what's scarier, losing nuclear weapons, but that it happens so often there's actually a term for it. Let, let's talk about then the the best scene of uh, Whaley's performance and indeed what Gordon notes in his commentary that for him is actually the most important scene of the whole movie. That death scene, he he talks about how it's really ugly and uncomfortable and certainly not pretty or heroic in the way that is typical for the genre at all. So you have Whaley's character dying very unglamorously on his belly, gushing blood, snot and tears. He's crying like a little boy and actually watching it with the sound off when the commentary was running. I was even more struck by how gopher broke committed Whaley is in this scene and equally impressed by what Hawk does with that energy. He's appropriately dumbfounded, but I feel like he's purposely not trying to play it at the same pitch, which not only stops the scene feel overbearing or manipulative, but somehow it still manages to make Whaley's character feel truly alone on his belly. And and you have Will with his hands on him, hopelessly trying to stop the blood, but he can't hold him or comfort him as we've traditionally seen in so many of these garden variety stagings of a scene like this. I think it's a truly remarkable moment. I agree. I think I think his death scene is super impactful. And I think I like the fact that they don't shy away from the uncomfortable bits because death isn't comfortable. Death isn't pretty. I think up to something like The Thin Red Line, which I think is kind of a masterwork in showing us how ugly death is. And I'm thinking about like Nick Stahl's death and Woody Harrelson, what happens to him in that film. And I think this film really sets that bar high and we get the sort of warts and all, see what the stakes actually are. Yeah, I think I think I agree. I think it is the most important scene in the film. I think it's the most profound scene in the film. And I think it's the scene that really the rest of that film is carried by that scene in pretty much every conceivable way. It's super specific in a way that Gordon takes a different approach to genre, which in a more general sense, he's keen to point out on the commentary. There's a striking difference between A Midnight Clear and many other American-made World War II films, which is here the total rejection of a sort of gung-ho America fuck yeah approach. Instead, this this movie's reflective. It it doesn't draw sharp moral lines. It it shows the soldiers as frightened, if dutiful, boys. They know Nazis are bad, and Aya Gross as the uh, Jewish character has a particular and justifiably visceral hatred of the enemy, but they're clearly not fully clued up on the politics. And I think we see that as well in how the German squad are characterized. The German squad, they might as well be a mirror reflection of the American. Because when Will's unit, when they finally come face to face with the enemy, they see it at this group who, it should be pointed out, they're led by two older commanders, but mostly they're very young, green, and they're scared like them. And actually, similarly, they're shacked up in a house in the middle of nowhere. And Will is haunted by this realisation when he gravely ponders about why the hell they even experienced this moment of sizing one another up in the first place. He says, I know we could have killed those three guys. I'm also sure they could have done the same to us last night. 
What I don't know in both cases is why it didn't happen. There's a sequence here of the two squads, the Americans and the Germans, getting into an entirely unexpected snowball fight. Wharton says that uh, a lot of what is in the novel is literally true. Whether that's the case with this sequence or not, it's very reminiscent of the ceasefire football match that we know was played in No Man's Land during World War One. The two sides, they confront each other with weapons holstered. And at one point, one of the squad calls the Germans Nazis within their earshot. And they reply, we're not Nazis, we're the German army. It's interesting. I think this is something that Almost all media and and a lot of history forgets about World War II. Of course, the leadership was morally repugnant. Their ideology infected a huge amount of the German people and indeed a huge amount of the army. But I think it would be crazy to think that every single conscripted soldier who wore an armband was a true believer. It's hard to say whether these particular soldiers are saying this to save their skin or because it's true. But I think it's hard to argue that there wouldn't have been people like them of whom it would have been true, which does not excuse in any way any of the actions they take in support of the party or the army, to be clear about that. But it is an interesting parallel, I think, that the film draws between these two squads of people who at least say that they are both confused about what they're fighting for. I definitely believe there were obviously plenty of soldiers that were not quote-unquote Nazis. Now, as to why are they saying this in this movie, I see it more as these are all people of around the same age. They're all kids. They obviously don't want to be fighting this war. They want to be elsewhere. They don't want to be here. And so the Germans know the war is over. These kids know the war is over. They know it's only a matter of time. All they want to do is try to keep from dying and make it back home. And so I get the sense that, you know, they probably are not what we think of when we think of Nazis as the way they're portrayed. I do think they're just a bunch of scared kids wanting to get home. I mean, and that's the sad thing is like, they're a lot more similar than we want to you know, think on the surface, because, you know, look, when you're making a movie, how do you convince somebody that you're going to make a movie about an empathetic Nazi? Like, those are probably words that send people screaming out the doors when they're reading something. And that, to some degree, isn't the movie that they're, they're making here. No, no, it's, it's, not, it's not the movie that they're making, but they are certainly pushing that to some degree, which I don't think is a bad no. thing. Because my favorite war movies are the ones, you know, I think of something like Letters from Iwo Jima, where we get to see both sides of the conflict in a really compelling way. Like, those are the ones that I'm interested in. And I think this film gives us some of that. Maybe not as much as I would have wanted, but it gives us some of it. I'm going to lay a theory on you, Billy Ray, speaking to that. I don't think it is the decision of these younger kids just trying to get out of there and save their skin. I think that they looked to the much older commanding officer, who's brilliantly played here by Kurt Lowens, and I think without any dialogue, that's what's so impressive about this and so powerful. You see a moment where Hawk catches his eyes, and in that expression you see the weight of so many atrocities that can't be undone. To paraphrase a famous Hawk line from Reality Bites, it's like a planet of regret on this guy's face of things he can never take back actions that will stop him sleeping soundly to the end of his days and his expression seems to be communicating this desperation just for a little bit of redemption at the end 
one good thing, which ensures that the boys under his command will never have to see or do many of the unforgivable acts he's participated in. And I think alongside Hawk, Lowens gives the best performance in the film. I have a slightly different read on that character. I don't quite read what you read into him, Tim. I read him as somebody who is a lifetime soldier who is slowly coming to terms with the fact that they've lost and doesn't know what's going to happen now to him, to his soldiers or anything. Like I look at it more as like confusion and anxiety, like being built up to think you're absolutely going to win this thing, then to actually be confronted with the fact that you're not going to win it. And then you're going to obviously face some sort of repercussion for your participation. And so I, I kind of read it just a little bit differently than that. I don't think that changes things too much for me in terms of the film, either or. He probably knows he's not long for this world. I feel like I can see both of those readings in in, in what's going on, even even though I, I can't say I had either of them specifically in my head, but I can see both of those things going on there. Absolutely. Either way you slice it, there's something just just tragically sad about this character. And if, at least in my estimation, that's the best acting in the film, and the Frank Whaley death scene, which we spoke of, is arguably the best single scene, I think the standout sequence is this coming-of-age film that's tucked inside the war movie. We've been commending Gordon's approach to genre, but I love how we spend so much time off the battlefield early on and how much room he gives this to breathe. It's almost like an entire movie of its own. And and that's a movie about four young men wanting to lose their virginity. And, And because of when and how it ends up happening, that is actually the first instance of innocence lost way before even a single bullet's been fired. They're not yet on the front lines, but their first sexual experience is explicitly connected to the war. So we follow the guys, including one, in fact, who is dead by the time that we see them during the war, over their last weekend of leave before shipping out. Again, making clear just how young these guys are, they are all virgins, and they've decided to hire a hooker. They elect to have four of them go in on the deal because though they'll be taking turns, anything more would feel like a gangbang. The transactional quality of what initially begins as these, you know, Larry guys getting a cheap hotel room and unsuccessfully looking for a prostitute to take turns with, it is upended by this lost suicidal woman who who just willingly is wanting to give herself to them as a means of saying goodbye to her young husband who the war has taken from her. The implication being that when she looks at each of them, she only sees the man she loves and will never get to be intimate with again. Yeah, that woman is named Janice, and she's played by Gordon's then-girlfriend, now his wife, who was also his assistant on the set. And she doesn't have any dialogue, but I don't know, nevertheless, for, for me, there's there's real life to her in the role. And I, I think a lot of that comes from what was apparently an improvised section of, of her and the boys just sitting on the bed, drinking and chatting. And the reason that feels so loose is because it was captured without any of them knowing that the, the camera was rolling. And you get so much from her in the role. Her name is Rachel Griffin. That There's this feeling, again, interestingly, with no dialogue, of her needing to carnally purge her private pain and somehow still feel the man she lost from beyond the grave. It's a need that turns out to be so much greater and more profound than that of the guys needing to get laid before shipping out and experiencing that pivotal transition into manhood. The, the, the strangeness of that night, how it ends up transpiring and this unexpectedly intense connection they make with the stranger is actually a thing that deepens their bond as a unit. So it's like this perverse training exercise 
in a weird way before they go to war and, and ultimately their big night and rite of passage is diminished in a way that takes them out of their individual headspace. But collectively, they're helping this woman who's got nothing left to live for find a measure of peace. They still feel very much like boys the next morning when they head off to war. It's in the end death that will make them men, not sex. Billy Ray, where do you fall on this sequence? As I mentioned, it was one that Vincent Canby wasn't particularly keen on and said that it feels superfluous within the film. I highly disagree with that myself. I disagree with him. I don't highly disagree. I understand where he's coming from. I do think you could take this scene out entirely and you would still have to do some patchwork here and there to give you the same heft that the scene presents, but I love the scene and I do think a lot of it has to deal with Rachel Griffin. I think she's fantastic here. I think talk about the way to come in and make one scene your own. Like, I think it's a great, you know, sort of education in that. You're seeing these kids in a different way because a woman's involved. The way young men act towards a woman is very different than the way they act towards other men. I don't call this a war movie. It is a coming-of-age movie. I mean, that is what I take away from this film. War is the backdrop. It's what's it's what's servicing the engine that is sort of propelling that coming-of-age story along. But it, it, to me, is not a war movie. And I think this scene is important to kind of drive that point home. It's about these kids. It's about their... It's about them growing up in a way that no kid should ever have to grow up. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it stand out from a lot of these other films of the same time. In terms of the coming of age aspects, I think it's about as maudlin an example as I can think of, freighted with so much unexpected emotional baggage. But I think it is really unique in this way. I feel like the way that that comes through most strongly in this sequence is in Going back to the narration once again, the part of the narration that ends this sequence and and was also Ethan Hawke's favourite line in the script, apparently, where he says, After a luxurious mass breakfast in bed, we walk Janice to her bus. None of us talk about what happened, and I think I'll always feel strange about my first sexual experience, masquerading as a dead boy named Matt, which just kills me. Let's be clear. I mean, I I generally am someone who thinks that voiceover in film is a fool's errand. I think it doesn't work 90% of the time, but boy, oh boy, when it works. And and what was, what's so funny is I actually thought of this film, I thought of Midnight Clear and the voiceover when I was watching my favorite film of 2022, Fire of Love, which is uh, an incredible documentary. Miranda July does the narration for that documentary. And there's something about the delivery and what's being spoken and what's being communicated that is so similar to this film for me. This one is a much more theatrical presentation of it. Miranda July's is a lot more internal, like coming from a guttural place. But I I just couldn't stop thinking about this film when I was watching that. And this narration is so powerful in this film, and it works so well. There's not a moment of it that I would get rid of. And Ethan Hawke, you know, does a great job delivering it. And and I think Ethan Hawke is great in this film. I think if you were to take away the voiceover from Ethan Hawke, I don't know that his performance would resonate very much with me because this performance is ostensibly him basically just doing Dead Poet Society again in a different context, but they're very similar characters to me in a lot of ways. So I think that the narration gives this performance and gives this role more sustenance than I would have gotten otherwise. That's interesting that you pointed out the Dead Poets comparison because Gordon actually makes a point of saying that it was his intelligence and vulnerability in that role that he he wanted him for this from day one. And pre-reality bites 
I find a sameness in Ethan Hawke's performances. In pretty much everything he does pre-Reality Bites, I get a lot of the same stuff from him. And he was young and figuring out his craft. And he's still great in a lot of those films. So I don't say that necessarily as a, as a knock on him. But I think it's in Reality Bites where I really start to see him growing as an actor. Before then, it was very much just like, we want you to play this specific type. And he did a great job at it. And yeah, like knocks it out of the park with what he's with what he's given. That said, when I think about a Midnight Clear, Ethan Hawke isn't even one of the top two people I think about when I think about this film. I think about Gary Sinise. I think about Frank Whaley. Those are the ones that stick out in my mind more than him, even though he's a much more substantial role in the film than either of those characters. But those are the two that stand out in my mind when I think about this film. They're just the ones that leap out. Not saying that he obviously doesn't give as great a job as anybody else in this film performance-wise, but apart from that voiceover... I, I feel like there are just more interesting characters around him. That sameness you speak of, I don't disagree, but I feel like, uh, and maybe this is just projection here because I read it and Hawk himself has been on record saying this, but I feel the way he describes this role. He talks about it as the first project he really wanted after Dead Poets. Certainly at the time of recording the 2002 commentary track, Hawke said it remains his favourite script, so it clearly meant a lot to him. And in terms of the onset experience, he talks about having just this giant experience on a modest production. He was five years younger than everyone else. And not only did he feel relatively inexperienced, but you spoke of how much you loved Gary Sinise in the movie. And Hawke took it further by saying that he felt in the shadow of a Steppenwolf theatre company hero. He was understandably really nervous, but I think that nervousness is what charges the performance. It's an entirely appropriate energy too, given that Will exists on this knife edge throughout while he's forcing himself to remain calm, focused and on mission. I think what you just said, you said really well. I think everything you just said also applies to Dead Poet Society and also applies to Alive in, in, in various ways in terms of the way he's approaching that performance. You speak of the early roles in a way that you see them on a continuum and you said you found this quite similar to Alive. Interestingly, that's one we've already covered. We seem to be in this zone at the moment of covering early performances. And I think actually what distinguishes him in A Midnight Clear that makes it very unlike Reality Bites, which we've also covered. In both Reality Bites and Alive, you've got the qualities that Gordon speaks of being drawn to, that intelligence and vulnerability. And yes, of course, it's there clearly all throughout Dead Poets. So we could even speak of them as qualities in a larger sense that define him as an actor. But so far in our viewing for this podcast, you get these qualities and they're playing often in tandem. But in the case of Reality Bites and Alive, they're always offset by an aloof assholishness or a prig-headedness. And I, I, I just don't think that's on display here at all. So I think that's certainly something that distinguishes it. I agree with you. Like I said, I think Reality Bites is when is when he finally comes into his own as a performer. To me, that is the role. I know some people might say Before Sunrise, but I think it's Reality Bites where he comes into his own as a performer. He's a young actor. Like, he's figuring out his craft. He's figuring out how to approach it. He's in films with fucking Robin Williams and, and Gary Sinise. And, like, just thinking about all the people who were in Alive, which is just insane to think about. I get, like, you saying him being nervous about acting around Gary Sinise. Like, that makes sense to me. Like, you're a young kid. You're the youngest person in the cast. And you're having to go to toe-to-toe -to -toe with who, at that point, was one of the top stage actors in the country. 
that's got to be intimidating. And a lot of these other actors, you know, that he's working with, like Arya Gross and people like that, they're stage actors. Like they come from that stage background. And not to say that Ethan Hawke didn't do theater either. He obviously did. But I can understand the being intimidated part. Ethan Hawke's career is just, and you know, that's why this podcast is going to be really interesting to follow through to fruition because he's had so many different phases in his career and so many different peaks and valleys. And it's just such an interesting body of work to the fact that like when he just randomly popped up in a movie that I went to see yesterday in theaters that I had no idea he was popping up in. It kind of was like both the most bewildering thing and made the most sense in the world. I know exactly of which you speak. And uh, and and I would wager that he was less nervous filming up in the mountains during the shoot for Alive. Because as I said on that episode, I think his approach there is sort of giving himself over to the enormity of nature. He's allowing himself to be small and giving into it. Whereas here... As a performer, he perhaps feels small and frightened with it, but it really supercharges the performance and it's perfectly appropriate. And the voiceover is a massive part of this performance, but I think it is also the key element of all the elements that are really harnessed very effectively to humanise everyone in this film. But he, he, in effect, is the voice of that humanisation. And no one else... No one else on this cast could have done this voiceover. Let's be clear. No offense to Peter, Kevin, Arya Garrett. Like, it needed to be him. In this group of people, it needed to be Ethan Hawke. So you guys have covered a lot about the performance there. One thing I'm, I'm not sure you quite address, and, and I think is really notable about his performance here, is if any early Hawke character has a reason to be as sort of over-earnest and, and reflective as many of them can be, I, I think it's Will. He speaks in these poetic sentences especially in the voiceover but even outside it but the writing it doesn't feel pretentious to me and i think that's probably because the conflict that hangs over it just gives it that weight a lot of his characters in this period seem world weary despite their youth but will has kind of seen and done enough to earn that status the the one thing i i think he can never or almost never hide as an actor is his intellect as we've said we we all know him to be intelligent and well read and that's another key to the character here you know it's the reason he's in this group of men and if there's a flaw with the bulk of the film it's perhaps that i don't see that quite so vividly from for instance peter berg and kevin dillon i'm sure they're very intelligent men but you know maybe doesn't come across so much in those characters hawk i think he plays will as the most analytical of the group but what i was trying to say earlier was that he's never doing it coldly i just think it's a really good example and this is a really speaks well of what keith gordon's doing here as well of using his inherent qualities as an actor and a person to really expand the character and and make him feel real you've articulated really well exactly what i'm sure keith gordon was looking for to the extent that he speaks of hawk as the foundation stone of casting the ensemble. You know, you start with him and you build it out around him, everything down to the height differences and the visual distinctions of the group and in terms of age and energy and essence. It was imperative, he said, to find six actors who would who would fit together like a family. You, you've got to believe that when you have two of the squad going by the names of mother and father. And actually my only casting quibble is that quite often, maybe it's because their heads are covered by helmets and when they're shot from certain angles, young Ethan Hawke and young Kevin Dillon weirdly look remarkably similar, which is a sentence I never thought I would utter. Maybe we can 
now that we're talking a bit more about Keith Gordon, we can use that to talk about some of his most striking uh, contributions to the film. I was speaking about how he goes to great efforts to humanise everybody in the movie. And I think so much of that really interestingly springs from the fact that you have a significantly lower body count than most war films. I can't remember a war movie, if I'm allowed to call it that, Billy Ray. I, I don't remember a war movie in which we see less people die. We don't see droves of lambs to the slaughter cut down by machine gun fire. Each casualty here, it carries real weight because we've spent time with the players on both sides and we've had these long stretches of quieter moments. So in all that time, we've put a human face on each of them. And that's something that the camera, to me, seems to actively be always striving for, even in the heat of battle, but certainly when they're watching and waiting. A lot of the film, especially the the first half hour, is kind of made up of the squad watching and waiting and, and trying to decide whether to go looking for the enemy. And within that and within the moments that they're outside and spotting them, there are a lot of small motions in, in this film that have explosive implications. Literally, in, in one sequence where they're spooked by the presence of the Germans, there's this moment where Will readies a grenade and... Kevin Dillon, playing a soldier named Avakian, tells him to put the pin back in that grenade. That kind of seems like the whole ethos of the film in one line, in that it's about how most of the bullets that were fired weren't achieving much, and how it's driven by tension over action. Putting the pin back, it, it only drags out the terror of whether the right choice is being made, and whether these men are as smart as they've been judged to be. Either way, they're still these very young men who are being thrown into something they don't know a whole lot about and are barely prepared for. How do you feel that Keith Gordon marshals that very small budget into these moments of tension and action? I don't want to take it away from Keith Gordon, but I think the main way Keith Gordon does this is by, in all five films that he has directed, he has worked with Tom Richmond as his DP. Tom Richmond, who passed away earlier this year, fantastic DP, did all of Keith Gordon's films with another grouping of awesome films as well. I think that's a big part of it. And I think so much about what works about this film for me, and I credit Gordon with this just as much as the DP or anybody else, which is his films are nothing if not immaculately lighted. Every single film from Chocolate War to Singing Detective, you can watch one of his films and just kind of marvel at the choices that are being made. And usually it's not about the light that's there. It's about the light that's not. And I think this film is operating on a dual system there where it's about the light that's there and it's about the light that's not. There really is this sense of care and detail in every single aspect of the filmmaking here. On the production side, he knocks most of it out of the park with this film. And I think that's just him as a filmmaker when I think about his other films. It's a shame to me that he hasn't directed a film in almost 20 years. I particularly like throughout, but especially in the opening, the way that he and Richmond introduce the characters in these close-up narrated tableau, which I, I just think are really effective fourth wall breaks really confront you with these guys as they're introduced. Richmond clearly had a really interesting career. I mean, you touched on it, Billy Ray, that he did all of Gordon's films. He also shot Chelsea Walls for Ethan Hawke. And assignments as varied as Chopping Mall, Todd Solon's Palindromes, and actually a live film for one of my favourite bands of all time, The Knife. 
among many, many more things. I think it's really wonderful that Richmond stuck with Gordon all the way through. His work here clearly stuck with Hawke for many years after the fact, because they don't make Chelsea Walls until 2001. And it's going to be such an interesting proposition to revisit that in the way that Billy Ray has just spoken of his work through the use of light, light that's there, light that is not there. When you transfer that approach across over to DV and him taking part in what was then that turn of the millennium digital video disruptor boom that actually at the time was threatening to be something of a paradigm shift for that little small window. I remember it being such a fascinating era in that respect. And when you look at reviews for Chelsea Wall's terribly reviewed film, it is, but I I remember loving it at the time. And certainly it's one of Hawke's films that I'm most eager to revisit on this podcast for a, a whole host of reasons. I was just going to talk more about Keith Gordon, you know, apart from the camera work. Like, it's interesting, out of the five films that he's made, all five are based on novels. Every single one is an adapted from, from a source novel. I respect that. I respect filmmakers who who don't necessarily want to just create an entire world from scratch. They want to take something and kind of make it their own. I don't know of another filmmaker where I could say every single film they've directed has been adapted from. That is fascinating. I've seen all the films and I've never considered that until now. But you're absolutely right. You look at his, his filmography, most of the films, with the exception of one, have something to do with war in some regard. Like, even Waking the Dead is about a fucking Coast Guard officer. Every film he does has some connection to the military in some way. And I'm, I'm taking, I don't think Singing Detective does, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a soldier or something in that as well. It's just, that seems to be something he's interested in as a storyteller as well. And I'd be interested to know if maybe he just comes from a military family and that's the source of it. If he's just always been this anti-war person and that's the source of it. Like, it'd be interesting to know why he's so fascinated by that material. You've definitely convinced me now to line them up and try and make those connections and figure all of that out. Be a a fascinating rewatch. And it's a very doable filmography as well. He's a really underrated filmmaker. And I think his Mother Night is very underrated. I think it's an underrated Nick Nolte performance. And I have a soft spot for The Chocolate War, his very first film. I, I think I think it's a lovely film. I think Chocolate War is a great first film for him. Well, we're in agreement there. It's my second favorite after this. And also share some DNA with A Midnight Clear. They're, they're after some similar things in very different ways. You can see through lines, but one of the through lines I want to get back to here is those tableau shots that Sam was talking about earlier. So I'll I'll turn it over to you first, Billy Ray. What do you think of this mechanism, this narrative device, this this approach to staging and, and giving these characters these fourth wall breaking introductions that are all appropriately very, very solemn? I love it. I think it's an excellent choice on his part. Again, it's not something you see a lot. That goes to show you why this is an independent film and not a studio film. Because I don't know that we would have gotten that had this been a studio film. I think my favorite of them is Avakian's. I just find it so haunting. It starts in this close-up, but it pulls back to show the aftermath of battle. There are bodies all around him, and he's standing in the middle of it. I, I, I think it's not triumphant, but almost impassive, as if he almost doesn't register what he's done or what has been done here with people's feet and legs and arms lying all around him. And I feel like that matches with what I was saying earlier about the narration when Hawke is saying that neither of the promotions was for anything that they did and that for that reason, neither of them has sewn on their stripes. 
that image just kind of haunts the movie for me in in a lot of ways and, and captures what it's about. I I think all of these tableaus, which funnily enough, they it made me think of the sort of savage theatricality of Julie Taymor's Titus of all things. You know, the eerie quiet with these very deliberate controlled camera moves, but carnage and chaos all around them. Chillingly effective in catching that precise moment of innocence lost that we've been talking about. Where does that happen? And and it's in these camera moves. They mark this damaged demarcation point that separates everything from before with everything that will follow. And I also think it creates such an interesting contrast with the urgency of the handheld framing during the battle sequences. He's not relying on explosions or bodies dropping. It's the actors really pushing wide-eyed fear and completely selling it. And you have faces doing so much of the work. Are there any more sequences that you kind of want to single out for any reason? I'll start with, there's a sequence where they're preparing to meet the Germans and getting Bud, the Peter Berg character, to pose as the group's commanding officer. I just think that sequence is a really good example of how well Gordon controls and shifts tone and mood. Bud's asking, what if it's a false white flag and they're going to capture the commander and he gets a bullet in the head? And nobody can answer that. So immediately they get him to walk like an officer and they're they're joking about how he actually looks like an officer. And he says, yeah, well, I actually feel like an arsehole. And the questions and the danger, they're always there, but they're they're pushed down as far as they're able. And I think it's a really good example of that in, in that sequence and of how even at the most tense moments, they're, they're trying to find a way to get relief from that. So that's, that's a sequence that kind of stands out for me. Spinning off of that, there's that really interesting dynamic between Will and Bud, where Will, as we've said, is the leader. But it's interesting that he doesn't hesitate to relinquish his command for their ruse. There's good reason in that. Visually, he isn't Aryan looking enough like Bud for the Germans to respect. And even amongst their group, as Billy Ray has underlined, Hawk at this time in his career is maybe even too boyish for them to take seriously as a person of any authority. So while I don't think I have any single scene, I think throughout with Hawk, or up until that moment, the relief in the transition of command is palpable. We've seen him visibly struggling with not being assertive or sure enough of what to do. And I just think Hawk modulates this so smartly because he doesn't build it obviously towards a big showy breakdown moment of cracking under the pressure. Instead, it's just this ongoing state of quiet, bubbling panic. And so much of the performance is him listening, trying to absorb everyone else's opinions and then come to a decision. And of course, with the Frank Whaley scene, it's only after he experiences the loss of life of someone he's come to love that the time for listening is definitely over. Only then can he finally mature into the leader that he was definitely called upon to be way too quickly. I don't really have any other scenes that I would mention. I would say, you know, I've been using the word theatricality a lot, and I would love to see this adapted as a stage play. And there's no reason in the world you couldn't do it. I mean, all you need is one set. I think this could be a really powerful piece of theater if it was presented correctly. You've just reminded me of a Sam Mendes production that I think was set in the Arden Forest. I saw it at the Donmar Warehouse in London. The set was just all tall trees and I saw it from the balcony. So we were looking down, seeing the whole performance through the foliage and it was so effective and I'm struggling for the life of me. Cannot remember the title of the play. Ray Winstone was among the cast. I remember that much. 
I've seen something like it and it was so effective on stage. So I, I completely believe that would work very well as an adaptation. Is it called To the Greenfields Beyond? Correct. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So there's one final thing that I want to come back to, which is we mentioned up top the Austin Chronicle review. The critic there, Mark Savlov, said that the film kind of falls apart towards the end. Now, I don't know that I fully agree with that. Towards the end, there's an incredibly moving sequence after Father is is killed, where they bathe him, his body, and prepare him. And after he's taken away, they also have to leave. For me, that's when the film... I think I agree with Savlov a little bit. It starts to to stutter a bit, a sort of chase with some German soldiers. The only bit of action really in the film, aside from the, the skirmish, which only becomes action through going wrong. For me, it just doesn't particularly fit with the film. It feels like the only bit that's maybe compromised a bit by the budget uh, as much as anything. It feels like the film loses something of its special tension once it goes further afield than you know a, a field i get where you're coming from i don't agree i i do i like the way that the film sort of ends or the way it moves towards its ending i like the fact that this special experience that we just shared with these these characters where we feel like we've got something unique out of it this is just another day for them they're going right back into the fight i take your point but i think that's also kind of where my problem with it lies in that it's the sequence in the film that I feel like I've seen in every other war film. I think the the same sort of ideas are there, but I, I do think it's handled handled well by Gordon. After all those sequences that we're debating here, it continues beyond the film. That's the big takeaway for me. There's nothing celebratory or victorious about this film at all. And I think ultimately that's why uh, it stayed with me since I first saw it. So I'll ask you then in closing, where do you think this sits in Hawke's career for you and and what were your general impressions revisiting it for this has it gone up or down in your estimation I I think it's exactly where it always has been in my estimation which is high I don't think it I don't think I've watched this movie so many times at this point that it's not moving in any direction one way or the other it's just going to be right where it is in in his overall oeuvre, I don't think you could say that this is one of his top tier performances, but that's not his fault. It's not that he's not giving a good performance. It's just he's not being called upon to do things in this film that he's being called upon to do in the before trilogy. They're very different types of films. So I wouldn't say it's one of his top tier films, but I think it is certainly if if I was going to if I if someone said you can only recommend one film from Ethan Hawke before, say, 1994. Which film would you recommend? It would probably be this one for me. Over Dead Poet Society, over Alive. It would probably be this one for me because I think this film and what Keith Gordon is doing in this film plays into what Ethan Hawke can give at this point in his career better than anything else did. Well, I said earlier that this was my first viewing of A Midnight Player. And honestly, it was a little bit of a revelation in terms of where it sits in his career. I I think it's kind of drastically underestimated in terms of his performance. If anything, it it might be his first great performance. and, And for the avoidance of controversy... I will note that when we get to the Dead Poets Society episode, that too will actually be a first viewing for me. In a lot of ways, I think, though, the performance as well is indicative of what he continues to do best, quiet nuance. 
And there's not a lot of actors that can let you see them think on screen without having to lean on dialogue. And I think Ethan Hawke is one of those who can, and he does it throughout this performance. I think there's there's a lot in the moments of quiet, the moments of silence that, that we're taking from what he's doing here. Him and, and Keith Gordon that are, that are doing that. Yeah, I think it's kind of great. I tried to think about it in terms of how he thinks about it now. Because as I've kept saying, this was something he actively pursued. One of the things he mentions on the making of, which is exclusive to the Shout Select Blu-ray, is this uh, deleted scene. I didn't have time to delve into those, so I don't know if he's speaking of something that is actually included on the disc. But anyway, he, he talks about this deleted scene that he came into on the day with a very cavalier and unprepared approach, and he was not good. And so he went home that night really angry at himself. And there seems to be something formative that has stayed with him ever since in ensuring that never happens again. He says that he never fails to recall this moment, actually, when he sees actors with the script sides in their hands between takes doing it on the fly and that he's always left singularly unimpressed. For me personally, I think I'm probably most happy that this project cemented the long-standing friendship and creative partnership with Frank Whaley, who went on to direct Hawk in two movies, The Jimmy Show and Joe the King. Two of them perhaps the least seen in his filmography as a whole. So I'm probably, next to Chelsea Walls, most excited about revisiting those. As I remember, again, Hawk being excellent in both. And when those came out in the early 2000s, you had to import them on Region A DVDs because they never, they, they never got a UK release. Then in terms of sort of how I feel about it now, I actually found a, an old letterbox list of 1993. This was 1993 for the UK. I think maybe I've put this film a little too high in the number 10 spot, but perhaps that's indicative of how much it has stayed with me over the years. Uh, I'm really starting to be won over already by Sam's argument that this is perhaps the uh, best performance of Young Hawk, certainly before he teams up with Linklater. And, you know, snowy war movies, as I've said, they're my favourite war movies. So I'll always go back to this again and again over some of the genre's more well-remembered favorites. I'll, I'll agree with you. I think it's his best film. Pre-Reality Bites, it's his best film. Maybe his best film, but I think it's his best performance for sure. I think that about wraps things up for this episode. Billy Ray, I mean, what can I say? Many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's been a blast as ever. I hope you'll be coming back in the not-too-distant. I don't remember what I'm coming back on for, but the answer is yes. Wonderful. Let people know where they can find you online. Oh, well, goodness. You can find me on all of the socials at Billy Ray Bruton. And uh, if you find me on the socials, you can also branch off to my many other endeavors, uh, which there are many. <laughs> well, let me just put in a little plug for uh, The Incinerator, since I've done it a couple of times now and might be doing it again in the future, I hope. I think that's a safe bet. We, me and Tim, always enjoy you when you're on screen drafts as well, because it plays into your chaos imp persona. Yeah, I think that's sort of where you launched the brand. Is that fair to say, Billy Ray? I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think it's, I think my chaos candidate stature has been overblown. If you actually listen to my episodes, I don't think I'm quite as chaotic as I've been made out to be, especially compared to some other guests. I have heard your Freddy versus Jason episode. Well, and see, you're picking the one one where it is clear that I'm correct. This may just be an aside that gets cut out, but I saw the Fridays this year and I totally agree with you. You know what? 
I think I think we can safely say here on this podcast, it is an objective truth that Jason Lives is the best Friday the 13th movie. It's just an objective truth. It's what Ethan would have wanted. I mean, God, Ethan Hawke is Jason Voorhees. <laughs> Sign me up. I want to see a scene where Jason cuts someone's head off with a machete and then sits and thinks about it for five minutes. <laughs> and thinks about what it means for the rest of his life. Produced by Jason Blum, directed by Paul Schrader. Put Keith Gordon in it. He's also a great actor. Put Keith in there. Well, that's that's not the lead-in I expected to this. But you can find me online at 24FPSUK on Twitter and Letterboxd. And on Twitter, you'll also find my link for Mastodon, in case Twitter burns down in a fire of Elon Musk's hubris. Uh, but before that fire makes it impossible to promote this show, follow the pod, at Pod. interact with us there, and if you like what you're hearing, a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts would be great. Uh, reviews written on Apple Podcasts will be read on the air. And, you know, if you have another Ethan Hawke fan in your life, what are you doing? Tell them about the conversation we're having here. We both really appreciate it. Hell, Billy Ray would appreciate it. He already said he'll be back. So spread the word in whatever way you can. As for me, I'm at Timothy Roar on Twitter. Um, just talking Hawk between recordings. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Do join us again next month. Talking Hawk.